0: This is Truth Encounter, and we live in a culture where connections are breaking down. Can we be successful and recognize the teamwork that it took to get to the top? Can we prosper materially without forgetting the one who gives us the power to generate wealth? Let's join Dave Wurtzen as he talks to us about how to rebuild some of our broken connections. You see, all the connections are breaking down, people. And the atmosphere that we're living in is calling us just to live for ourselves and don't be devoted to one another. And the older generation is being told, don't worry about those young people. You already raised the young people. You've already done your thing. You've already taught the Sunday school classes. You've already worked in the nursery. Now's your time just to do your thing. And the younger people are being told after they get, they get in college, there's, a, there's an in-between time period. You don't need to be involved with God's people anymore. This is your time to kind of be in college and do your own thing and just get out there. And communion with God's people gets left behind. Little children are left because younger, middle-aged parents are saying, I need to get out there and work, 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 work. So in the summer months across this town, children are just left alone without any guidance, just there with the marvelous teaching of TV. Our culture is Canaanite. Our culture is Canaanite. And what the Lord is saying is he will bring judgment. The evangelical church is saying, don't talk about judgment on a Sunday morning. What I'm teaching in Deuteronomy, evangelicalism, are teaching young pastors, what I'm doing is out of it. It's out of it. You don't talk to people about sin. You don't talk to people about wickedness. And who would ever teach from the Old Testament? I mean, we hardly can get into the New Testament. How can we ever get into Deuteronomy? I'm very serious about that. Across evangelicalism, there's there's a, a slow moving away from the teaching of God's holy word. And I want to share with you what happens to me because I've been in the book of Deuteronomy this week the Lord starts to put his finger on my life. He starts to say, Dave, you are prideful here in a very subtle way. And this idea that you think that, that I reward you because you're good and because you've been a pastor and because some of the things that you've done, it creeps into your life. And as I read Deuteronomy chapter 9, the Holy Spirit's able to rip away that facade. And because he loves me, he tells me the truth. They across this land, evangelicalism is moving away from that kind of exposure to the convicting work that God's Word can do in all of our lives. And Moses is saying to the children of Israel that Canaanites are going to be destroyed because their wickedness has become full. You see, way back in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord appeared to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to take you for four generations which turned out to be 400 years, I'm going to take you down into the land of Egypt. And I'm going to give the Canaanites a chance to turn away from their wicked ways. Just like the Lord was going to do many years later with the city of Nineveh. The Assyrians were so cruel, they would pile skulls up on the borders of the land that they conquered. They dismember women that were pregnant and just spill everything on the ground. They were a heinous, cruel people. If you were to say, Dave, name the cruelest people in the Old Testament, it would be the Assyrians. And yet one day, because the Lord is a merciful God, he sent Jonah to the Assyrians, just like he sent Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the Canaanites, and they preached, repent, turn to the Lord, turn to his mercy, turn to his love, turn to his compassion. In Jonah's case, even though the prophet didn't even want it to happen, the entire city repented. They tore off their clothes, which is an ancient Near Eastern way of just describing how deeply moved they were. They put dust on their head, and they prayed. And they asked the Lord to forgive them. And there was the greatest revival that's probably ever taken place in a major world empire. So God is merciful, and the Lord gave the Canaanites a chance to repent, but they did not repent. And there does come a time where he that has been often reproved shall suddenly be cut off, and that without remedy. Now, when that happens, and you're the one that's blessed, and someone else faces judgment, it's real easy to say, well, it's because I was good. And what Moses tells the people is, don't make that, that deduction. Don't think that because God blessed you, don't think that because the Lord hasn't punished you, that you're good. But he also doesn't say this. You can say, well, David, I'm listening to you. It makes me feel wicked, and it makes me feel unclean. No, what you need to do is you need to realize you've been forgiven. That's the point of this passage. The, Moses is telling the children of Israel, don't think you're going to possess the land of Canaan because you're good. It's not because you're good, but it's because God made a promise. God made a promise to your your great-grandfather. He made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, and that promise was not based upon the fact that they were good. Now listen to me, because this is the biggest lie, and it's believed across this area. It's a dominant, dominant false belief. And that's the idea that God rewards those who are good. In fact, across this area, and I've told you this over and over again, but we have got to get out there in the marketplace and communicate to people that God relates to those who need forgiveness. The children of Israel were able to enter the promised land not because they were the good people, it's because they were the forgiven people. You say, Dave, how does Moses prove that? What Moses goes on to do is Moses says, I'm going to give you a history of your stiff-necked condition. Now, what does it mean to be stiff-necked? Well, all of you that have worked with cattle know exactly what it means to be stiff-necked. In fact, I think I can illustrate uh, Mary's dad likes to train horses, and he was out with, with, uh, with Tari. And he was teaching Tari, who's a young cutting horse, some of the basic disciplines that a horse really needs to learn. And one of the things Dad does is right down the ground, he takes the reins just standing on the ground and gets Tari so that if he just lays that rein, just lays it a little bit on its neck, that Tari will move that neck just like that and turn exactly the way that he wants the horse to go. Now, when you do it the other way, just a touch. In fact, it eventually gets to so like Ted Anderson, who's a fellow that's not home with the Lord. Ted trained horses up in Nebraska. Ted would have a horse in a matter of about a week, even less time than a week. It would be like a dog. It would stand there. You could throw the saddle on it. it didn't run away. You could just get on it. Just pressure. Like when I got on the horse, the horse was totally confused because my pressures were all wrong. But all you need to do with one of the horses that Ted trained, you can almost think direction and just change your weight just a little bit, just slight pressure in the neck, wham, the horse would turn. In fact, if you weren't ready, you'd be on the ground because it would be so obedient. Now, the horses that I rode at Word of Life Ranch were not like that. We had a horse named Prince that had a lot of thoroughbred in him, and he could run like the wind. And when I was about 16, I got on him, and he took off. And he liked to run around through the woods around this track. And he took off. I was totally out of control. In fact, you could take the rein and just just with all your might try to turn his head into the ground. And he would harden that neck and bow it up. And man, that neck, you could, all the muscles. And his muscles in in his neck were a lot bigger than my 14-year-old muscles. And he just took off through the trees as fast as he could go. That's the way we are stiff-necked you see god wants us to respond to a touch he wants us to turn just on a dime when he says to turn but you know what i find i don't do that some of you 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 say dave how do you know when that happens you know what reveals that stiff neck thing the lord talks very quietly and says dave that attitude right there is wrong and i go No, it isn't. Dave, you really ought to do this. You ought to relate to so-and-so like this. And I go, and every one of you suffer from a stiff-necked condition. Where did it start for the children of Israel? It says in verse 7, Remember this and never forget it, how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day that you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, right at the very beginning, Horeb is Mount Sinai, where the children of Israel received the law. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stood in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and I drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God on them, They were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire in the day of the assembly. Now, what law did the Lord give to to Moses during those 40 days and 40 nights? What law did he give them? He gave them the 10. Now, I just want you to think about it. You got the scene. You've just gathered at a mountain... The presence of the Lord. Remember what Prof. Hendricks told us and says that what we really need in our church families is to back up to about a million volts of electricity. In other words, as we gather together on a Sunday morning, we need to come into the presence of God. We need to realize that the Spirit of God dwells in our hearts and we need to back up. In fact, I would like to say we need to face up to that presence of God and that's what's going to change us. Well, that's what the children of Israel should have experienced. And can you imagine being gathered? We've described this several times in the book of Deuteronomy. Can you imagine being gathered together at the foot of Mount Sinai and you hear the very word of God? You have God declaring the basic foundation of all the morality. How do you think people would respond to that after it happened? Moses, your great leader, goes up and He's fasting. For 40 days and 40 nights, he's totally dependent upon the Lord. How do you think 2 million people at the mountain would react? Well, I would expect them to sing praise choruses. I would expect them to sing the great hymns of the faith. I would expect Miriam to get all the women organized, and they would rejoice before the Lord. That's not what they did. Moses hadn't been gone a few hours, and some of, the, some of the rabble in the group said, Moses isn't coming back. Moses isn't the right leader here. Moses is, a, Moses, Moses is a, he's a false leader. Man, he's brought us out of Egypt and now he's disappeared in some weird old mountain. Look, and he went up into the clouds. He's never coming back again. And on the, and the, and, and the outskirts of the camp, it starts to move in. Brothers and sisters, you know, you can be right next to the mountain where God is speaking. You can be right in the presence of where God is declaring his righteousness and his love and his compassion. And you can miss it. And I can miss it. They went to the leader. Aaron was the leader. He was Moses, you know, his brother. And Aaron was this priest that had been ordained by the Lord. He hadn't been installed yet. But the Lord had already appointed him. And the people said to Aaron, Aaron, do something. Well, Aaron was kind of a yellow-bellied kind of a guy. He says, "We'll take off all your gold earrings, all the gold out of your nose. If you think earrings and guys are a new thing, the ancient Israelite in thing was for guys and girls to wear earrings. I don't know which ear they wore them on. But Aaron said, "Bring all the gold earrings." And he put them in a big pot, heated it up, and he molten down, made a molten liquid out of that. He made a cast of a calf. And he poured the gold into that form. And there it was. Just like the Egyptian god Apis, the bull bull god. Just like the way Baal and Astart, or Anat, the Canaanite gods were pictured riding on the bull. They were going to worship God. And they had a great big party. I mean, did they party? I mean, they made so much noise at this party that God heard them and Moses heard them way up on the mountain. And you know how this story goes. And Moses recounts that story here in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, Moses, you remember what happened? The Lord God says, Moses, the people have already broken the first and the second commandment. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And right the very first thing, after the Lord had given them, them the Ten Commandments, right away, they made an idolatrous cap. Now, what did they do? They worshipped what their hands had made. They worshipped the gods of things. Instead of realizing that our whole life is dependent, our entire life is dependent upon the one that we can't see the one who's morally righteous, the one who's morally good. Instead of worshiping the one that we can't see, they worship gold. It's so fitting that the calf idol was made out of gold because it's still the dominant idol in many of our lives today. It's a sneaking, subtle idol that comes in and we start living for the gold. And then we live to party. We live to have a good time. I could give one testimony after another of different people through the years that started living for the gold and then they started living for the pleasure that the gold can bring. It takes husbands away from wives. It takes wives away from husbands. It takes kids that are morally pure and turns them into immoral kids. The music gets loud. The beer gets hot. And you got the golden calf all over again. Now, what's God going to do? What's God going to do? God was going to destroy the people because the wages of sin is death. But I want you to look and see what Moses did. It says, and the Lord said to me, verse 13, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. And a lot of leaders would have said, good, Lord, that's great. Wipe out those murmuring, obnoxious people and let's have a new nation. But that's not what Moses did. Look what he did. Verse 15. So I turned and I went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire. The two tablets of the covenant were with me in my hand and when I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. Verse 16. And you had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets, threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces. In other words, the covenant. Moses didn't do this because he was angry. He was angry, but it wasn't a spur-of-the-moment throw. He was symbolizing the first covenant is dead. God has no obligation to these people, no legal obligation. They've totally torn up their side of the agreement. But notice what it says in verse 18. Then once again I fell prostrate before the Lord. For 40 days and 40 nights I ate no bread and I drank no water because all of the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord and so provoking him to anger. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again the Lord listened to me. And the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him, but at that time I prayed for Aaron too. Also, I took that sinful thing of yours, the calf you had made, and I burned it in the fire. Then I crushed it to the ground, and I ground it to powder as fine as dust and threw the dust into a stream that flowed down the mountain. Then he mentions where they also made the Lord angry at Tabor, at Massa, and at the Katava, which means the grave of desire, grave of desire. And it's, it's just a very powerful statement of what we talked about a little bit earlier today, about how one of our enemies are these internal desires that produce death within me. And when the Lord sent you out from Kadesh Barnea, He said, go up and take possession of the land I have given you. But you rebelled again against the Lord your God. You did not trust Him. You did not obey Him. And that's the cause. That's the key verse of this chapter. You didn't trust Him. You weren't willing to rely upon the Lord. Therefore, you didn't obey Him. And the result was that you rebelled against him. Verse 25, I lay prostrate before the Lord those 40 days and 40 nights, and I prayed because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt. I want you to remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob overlooked the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin, Otherwise, the country which which you brought us will say, because the Lord was unable to take them into the land, he had promised, because he hated them, he brought them to put them to death in the desert. But they are your people, your inheritance, that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arms. I want you to see this. And I want all of you to practice it this week. How many of you have really gotten exercised exercise over the last several weeks about the sin that's in the land? How many of you have gotten angry about some of the things that have happened politically and about morality in your land? How many, you, how many of you get angry about the exclusion of God from the public marketplace? I want to ask you this. How many of you have interceded for your enemies? How many of you have asked the Lord to turn them away from their wicked way? How many of you, and, and myself included, how much intercession have we done? I think one of the major reasons that the church of Jesus Christ is having so little moral effect upon our land is because we've forgotten how to intercede. We've forgotten how to pray. What we need to do, we need to start to pray like this. We need to say, Lord, it's your great name that I want to be honored. When I hear your name taken in vain, we need to intercede. Lord, Lord, cause your great name to be lifted up and then we need to do it ourselves when we sing together our heart is not really focused on the Lord it's focused much more on what we like the sound that we like the melodies that we like the words that we're familiar with a lot of us are still in just nostalgic days from our childhood or we're filled with the new music of today What the Lord wants, you know when we gather together, you know what he wants? It's just like what a wife needs. When her husband looks at her eyes and says, Honey, I love you. And when a woman looks at her husband and says, Honey, I love you. That's why we sing when we gather together. And yet most of us, I find myself included. It's very easy for me to be thinking about what am I going to say? And are there enough people here today? And where is somebody, so and so and so and so? Instead of saying, Lord, I'm here to meet you with your people. We need to grow in that. Now I want it's really important to understand. Don't get discouraged. I'm not discouraged at all. But as your as your pastor, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to level with you. We need to learn to really worship and love. Because that's the way we honor the Lord. And the way we're going to do that is to get our hearts prepared. We need to intercede during the week. We need to pray that the Lord will really powerfully move among us to encourage us. We need to pray. We need to intercede. We also need to get rid of the golden calf in our own life. We need to grind it up, smash it, and throw it in the river. We need to turn away from those things that are pulling us in to that idolatrous world system. And we need to learn to pray for the Lord's honor. You notice what Moses appealed to? Moses appealed to the Lord's honor and then he appealed to the Lord's mercy. He said, God, remember it, you made a promise. And I want you to understand this. Should you be discouraged today? Should you look at the wickedness in your heart and say, I'll never make it? No. You know why? The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from every sin. You know, God made a promise to you. He said, being confident of this very thing, that the one that began a good work in you will complete it till the day of Jesus Christ.
1: Aren't you glad that as we study the history of ancient Israel and we learn about some of the struggles they had in their relationship with God, that we also read that one day the power of God is going to reach out to them, it's going to renew them. It's going to cause thousands of them to believe in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God the Father is ultimately going to win the hearts of his people. That's what we ended with today, the idea that in the midst of all of our human frailty and our tendency to go after Canaanite gods and to lose legitimate connections and to begin to focus on ourself in the midst of success and victory instead of recognizing that, man, if God the Father just turns off our heartbeat, we've had it, and yet we get all pumped up, you know, kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger and think we're something really, really special. And isn't it great to know that the Spirit of God keeps working in our life? He keeps bringing us back to reality. And even some of you that are totally turned off about the word of God right now and about Jesus Christ, I want you to know that the hound of heaven is after you and he's going to keep on coming. And I pray that one day that you'll stop fighting him and you'll stop being arrogant and that you'll humble yourself like a little child and you'll open your heart to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and you'll believe in him.